Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 477. This is a special Israel at War edition, special Nittel edition as well. This program is dedicated in loving memory of Miriam Baselio Altes, Allah HaSholem, and Emerita Baruch Ben Yomim Ben Menuchalana Altes, Yukusil Ben Lei Rochel and Rochel Basli Befarkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadras Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. Being that our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land are under attack and being protected and defended by, by the glorious Bali Mesiris Nefesh of the Tzahal, greatest thing a person can do is to sacrifice their own life for helping and protecting others. So though it's Nittle night, and we know there are different ways we behave, what we do, what we don't do, I didn't feel it appropriate to uh, cancel this program, but rather to do it in honor of our dear brothers and sisters, the men, women, and children in Israel, and for that matter, Yidin everywhere. But, of course, as the Rabbeim say, as brought in Hayyem Yem, that uh, during these hours, we don't learn Taylor to be Moisif Chayis, tell stories. I thought that Chassidah Supplied can also fulfill that by talking about the war, talking about directives, lessons, in the context of inspiration, empowerment, clarity, in these special times. And I hope I live up to what the Rabbeim expected of us in both offering insights while also making sure that we do not do what the Rebbe Rashab said, that he could not tolerate those that have to, dafk in these eight hours, be learning Teda, which is a big statement because in a time like this, you think the best thing is to be learning Teda. And yet, we should not think that this means that we do, God forbid, something that's not apitated. That goof is apitated. In a powerful sikha that the Rebbe spoke, Tov Shinun, Pasha Vayeshev, spoke about Nittl and said that that night was the custom in Chabad and Lubavitch, they would play chess. And the story goes that once they were playing chess, the Rebbe Rashab would stand on the side and show lessons that you learn from the chess game. And we have a picture of the Rebbe and the Friedrich Rebbe playing chess. Everyone always thought it was Nittle Night. It was not Nittle Night. It was the Friedrich Rebbe was in a sanitarium for health purposes. And the doctors had said that he shouldn't be concentrating and learning, do something more lightly. For him, light was playing chess. So he played with the Rebbe chess. And I had actually discussed to prepare a sikha that the Rebbe had given in Tavshin Ches before the Nasiyas, before the Rebbe's leadership. The Rebbe spoke about the game of chess because Roshevsky was a chess master, a grandmaster, was at the Fabrengen, and the Rebbe often in those years, before the Nisiyas, the Rebbe, Shavosh Mivarchim, 
would often speak about a person who was at the table, the, the work they were doing, and learn lessons since he was a chess master. The Rebbe learned lessons from chess and told the story about the Rebbe Rashab. And the Rebbe, in turn, spoke about chess. So then, when they were preparing the book, Yimei Breshis, it's a book about the early years of the Rebbe's leadership and the years and this, and this period prior to that, so it was an opportunity to give that sikhin to the Rebbe for editing from Tov Shechess, 1948, and the Rebbe edited it. So we have a sikh actually edited by the Rebbe. I recreated it from, different, from the memory of uh, different people who were there. Beautiful sikhin, learning lessons from chess. In that sikhin Vayeshev, Tov Shenun, the Rebbe says, so therefore, since we don't learn Teirah directly, but this is a time to contemplate and the tziur of the Rebbe Rashab standing as they were playing chess. That you could do nitl. Rebbe brings there also, there was a custom by some yeshiva bochrim who had, uh, in their clothing, they had different, they had to patch up different holes that they would, uh, the night of nitl, they would use that as an opportunity to sew any patches that needed on their clothing. The point that Rebbe makes there is that even though you don't directly learn Taylor, that doesn't mean you don't do anything. It means that whatever you're not doing, that itself is an opportunity to fill with something a Gedusha. Reminds me of the story we know when the Friv de Rebbe was arrested, Tafresh Pezayin. So, they asked him, his tormentors, his captors, they asked him, do you know where you are? Because he was refusing to cooperate. So they said, do you know where you are? I wanted to intimidate him, show him where he is and, and frighten him. So he says, I know where I am. Yeah, I am in a place that's potter of a mezuzah. A stable, a horse stable is potter from a mezuzah, just like a bathroom is. So the Rebbe explains that by saying that, he was being mamshich, in a place that's part of mezuzah, because that itself is halacha. So there are things where you have to have a mezuzah. The fact that he said this is a place that's part of mezuzah, so he's bringing godly will that there shouldn't be a mezuzah. That itself is, is a teiradik concept. So there are times where you learn kedusha through teira, through giluyim, through giluyim, and sometimes through heder, which is actually the meaning of nitl, as the Rebbe explains in that by Yeshav Sichem. That by refraining from something, that itself you're drawing down even higher energy. In Lakut Tate, Pukute, he says that. That a negative mitzvah, Mitzvah Slesa said, by not doing it, by refraining, you draw down even a higher power. And that's how we transform an evening like this. Of course, the lesson to us regarding the war is very obvious. War itself is also a time of heder. It's not a peaceful time. Absence of peace, absence of calm. So you could just see it as a negative thing, or you could see it as a catalyst to bring out even deeper strengths within us. Like the Rebbe said, the story of the Rebbe when he had the heart attack, 1977. Interesting, Sheminat says this year. So the Rebbe then said, one of the things that he spoke about with the doctors, 
He asked them, where is the, the power come from when you draw blood from someone? They were drawing blood from the Rebbe with a needle. Is it the needle or is it the vacuum inside the needle? And they said, it's the vacuum. And the Rebbe learned from that lesson as well. That is the vacuum, the empty space that draws something more powerful than even any object, any identifiable power. As a matter of fact, that Fabrengen, that year, there was always a Fabrengen before Hakafas. That year, the Rebbe did not Fabrengen because of the situation. He would speak the next night after Yontem from his room. And then Zeus Hanukkah was like a Suddha uh, Seydah, filling in for the last day that, of that Fabrengen. The Rebbe said to fill that which we didn't do. He washed on Zeus Hanukkah, gave Atkosha Baruch as he would do some Teda. So the Rebbe gave over through the secretary, Rabbi Groner. So there was a Fabrengen downstairs in 770, and the Rebbe's chair was there, but it was empty. The Rebbe gave over the story. She used the example with a needle. When Yenison and David are talking that David would not appear in his regular seat at the meal, the Erev Rishchedesh meal, every Erev Rishchedesh, there was a meal that king, the king would throw a suda, a meal, a festive meal, and David Amelch would sit in a particular place. So when they were speaking, he says, since David was afraid, Shaul at that point was already pursuing him. So he didn't show up. So Yenison says, when David and Yenison are speaking, you will be remembered because your seat is empty. So when a person sits in their seat, sometimes we don't even notice because it's uh, usual. But the empty seat, the vacuum, the nittle, that which is refraining from, that will remind, that reminds. So it's interesting, the absence of something can remind you of it much more than when it's there. So when we're in our comfort zones, we're in our comfort zones. But there are times when we're out of our comfort zone, it generates more energy than when we are in a comfortable place. So we have to fight battles. Not that we want them and not that we ask for it, but it also has a tendency, it has the power to evoke and draw out even more strength than in regular times. Like an olive doesn't give out, produce its oil until you press it. So these are some lessons we can learn from Nittl regarding our times. Moving from Nittl, it's also the month of Tevis. We had Hey Tevis, we had Asada Tevis. So let's talk about Tevis. Someone asked the question. The Gemara says that Achashverosh took Esther into the palace during the month of Tevis because Tevis is a cold month where bodies get benefits from the warmth of each other. Guf guf. Would it make sense to say that Tevis is the perfect time for Mashiach to come? Because we need his warmth for Teir and Mitzvahs to, off- to offset the coldness of Golas. Absolutely. I remember when Pre- took another story, President Shazar, so several times he came to see the Rebbe. He came to see the Rebbe many times before he was president, afterwards. But there were a few times that he was president, I think three times that he came. One was uh, Purim time. He came in Tavshin Chavov, I think it was 1966. It was a freezing, freezing day in New York, freezing evening. 
And you could hear it on tape. You hear him speaking in this beautiful Yiddish. And he says, Afilu ba'uns, in the cults de erter, kommt es nicht zu der Kultskeit. Verfroren kein, do in stod, do in. That the coldest, in our coldest regions, we don't come to this freezing cold as it is now here in the city. And the Rebbe responded, yeah. And that's why the Fashik Meharop and Neshama Lamata, that's what we send in the Shamat below. So can they environment in order to warm up? And he acknowledges it. So yes, just like we talked about Nittel, it is sometimes the opposite that, that brings out the, big, the greatest power that we have. When it's cold, you can say it's cold, and that's that. Or you can warm up the environment. That's what cold is supposed to bring out. So that's exactly the guf nanam in aguf of Tevis. Cold month, the months of the cold months in this region, in this atmosphere. To environment, to warm up. So whenever there's coldness, physical coldness, emotional coldness, psychological, spiritual, that's our role, that's our mission. It's environment. Which also is a lesson in general in life that any challenge that comes our way, we have a response. And if it's darker or colder, that f- compels us to bring out even more warmth from within the Ner Hashem, Nishma Sodom. We're also coming from Asada Batavis. Asada Batavis, of course, is the first of the tiniest connected to the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. So the first thing Nebuchadnezzar in the first temple did was that he besieged Jerusalem. He lay siege around the whole wall. Later, he would actually breach the wall. That would be on the 17th of Thomas. And three weeks later, get to the Beis Amidish and burn the Beis Amidish but it all began with the besieging there was no siege there was no Motzer there was no siege there would obviously be no breach that's why the Rebbe explains has a certain intensity to it that's even more than the other fast days because the beginning of the I don't want to say the end, but the beginning of the problems. You want to nip it in the bud. Well, the same thing you can say when there's a time of war. It all begins that if you don't prevent things in the beginning, when the walls are being surrounded, much later to do things once they have been surrounded, once they've been besieged. Very much you can say the same thing with the walls around Gaza. Once you did not protect it properly, it's not about pointing fingers, just about looking at the parallels. But now comes the job to correct things. So Asura Batavis teaches us many, many lessons about how we have to repair that which was breached or before that besieged. As the Rebbe explains, with Samach Mevel the word Samach also can mean positive, to support. So just like something is weak, what do you do to counter weakness? Again, the negative brings out even more of the positive. You create more support. Say Support the fallen down ones. The downfall. In order to lift up even higher those that are weak. 
So it's not just enough to go back to square one, it's you have to completely transform the negative into the positive. So in that context and spirit, somebody writes, Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. I take the, I, um, hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Here it is. Did the Rebbe once say that the third base Amidish would be made of iron even though the first two were not allowed to be made of iron? Barzel. Perhaps it can give an intuition into the name of the Hamas versus Israel war, war called Iron Swords and that this war is really a last stand by the forces of evil to attempt to stop the holiness of the third base Amigdash from filling the world with godliness. So indeed, in a very interesting sikhet, Asura B'Tevis, 10th of Tevis, and Shabbos Vayechi, Tavshinun Beis, the look in volume one of Sefer HaSikhet, Tavshinun Beis, page approximately 234, 235, 236, where he talks about this. So it's interesting, Iron Sword, yeah. He talks about that Barzil is not a thing. You don't bring Barzil as the, as the din is, and Halacha brings it from Medrash, because a sword was made of it. A sword ends life, and the Beis Medrash was meant to extend life. But then there's the transformation of Barzil to Klippa, iron, from the negative to turn into iron of Gedusha, like Barzil, Roshetavis, Bila, Rochel, Zilpaleya, as he explains there, and connects it to Asada Betavis. So there's that element of transformation of the negative into the positive. So that's the way we can understand that. <clears throat> that may the swords be indeed turned into plowshares, as the, as the Novi says. Since we're on this topic, someone wrote a comment, and let me read the comment. We get many, many, as you can imagine, many letters that come in. Many, uh, feed, much feedback to previous programs as well as new questions. So this is a good opportunity to mention machsidasupply.com where you can find this and all previous episodes plus other resources and materials around chassidus supplied. So someone writes, Hi, hello, Rabbi Jacobson. I take the liberty of speaking for your listener family to say that we are sorry to see that you have a cold as of last Sunday's class and on the Wednesday night class. Blessings for Rafur Shlema, Rafuas and Yeshua's to Gans Klaiswa. My question why was the Chuva Gomor that Yeshua's brother did not sufficient did not sufficient to spare, was not sufficient to spare the ten martyrs from the haunting from their haunting fate? Thank you for telling us what the Rebbe says on this with appreciation of your mission to teach us about ours, a grateful student. So this takes us back to the last week's Pasha. Again, I'm trying to not talk about the learning part of it, but more the lessons that we learned, the inspirations that we learned. Because at the end of the day, as we discussed then, though Yeshua's brothers had a good reason, as the Shalom explains, for what they did, but they were wrong at the end of the day. They were wrong for selling Yosef into slavery. Hashem wanted him to be the leader. That Talmud Talmud and as the king then, who was of course a doing it out of pure hatred, but he justified it by saying, "What does it say in the Torah?" He asked the ten martyrs. It says, "If you kidnap someone, what do you do?" And with that was his excuse to barbarically kill the ten martyrs. 
So, and then when the Malachim of Moshe said, Zu this is Tere, this is reward, Hashem said, That was Hashem's Gzeda. It was a Gzeda. So on one hand, you see Shtek. He didn't say it was the ten brothers. So you see, it's not so simple. But to say that it was not at all justifiable, because it says there clearly that they've sent up the Rabbi Shmuel Kain Gadol, who went up to Lamaila, and he asked the Ish Levush Abadim. And he said, yeah, Gzeda. It's a Gzeda that you should accept. So on one hand, it's a Gzeda that's Shtekachol and Machshava, but there is some connection. So how do you explain that? So the explanation is very much connected again to Nittal and all these, nef- these negative things, and that is what the, the Gemara says, that when a person, that there are people who died not because of sins, but because it yishal nochash, the plot, the conspiracy of the serpent. In other words, the Chet Eitz introduced a toxin in this world that brought death, as the Torah says. This doesn't mean that every person's direct sin did it. So the world was changed after that. So the brothers of Vyesa, the fact that they could do something like that, was because a world that's not yet aligned with pure godliness. So the Melech, the Roman Empire, he, and his vicious, and his Achzarius, his sadism, and his hatred, he did what he did. But there was subtly some room. As soon as there's room, somewhere by Yidin, some form of period, something they did wrong, even if it's not something you could say totally responsible today, actually responsible, Chayv Misa. You know, the question is, according to the Shalah, they felt that Yosef was Chayv Misa because of Merida Bamalchus, because he was uh, mutinying, he was rebelling against the king, Yehuda. Would you say the same thing that they're Chayv Misa? The king said it, and the Gebrisa said Xeda. So the Xeda is, in general, we have a world not aligned, and therefore it's possible that martyrs, such great people like Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel, and all of the great martyrs, should, should be killed in such a fashion. Not necessarily because they did such a, because the, the Shvatim did such a terrible crime, but it was still a crime. I don't want to minimize it, and I don't want to maximize it. So I think we have to look at things in that context. We don't put point, point fingers and blame anybody, but it says every generation that doesn't rebuild the Beis Amidish is as if it destroyed the Beis Amidish, which means that we all have responsibility. I, we didn't do it, but as long as we don't rebuild it, means there's some responsibility that we carry because there is some collective, accumulative effect of our dissonance and our disconnect from godliness that ultimately allows. Remember, if God is completely revealed in this world, there's no room for anything negative, anything. Not by us and definitely not in the world around us and definitely not something like the, the killing of the ten martyrs. Okay. So, continuing on this uh, spirit, let's talk a bit, some lessons that we learn from the story of Yaakov. As I said, I'm focusing on the stories. What we can learn from this week's Torah portion about the war today. So here again, talking about Gula Mashiach, which we're all hoping for. What did Yaakov mean when he said a seemingly shocking statement that the best years of his life were in Mitzrayim, which was a, con- a corrupt country of idol worship? So this is already a question that was asked, a story that told by Tzemach Sadiq with Al Rebbe. He asked him that question. It says these last 17 years, Gematri Tev, as the Balaturim says, the Davke Mitzrayim. 
So this takes us back to the same theme. It, the darkness of Ervas Ha'aretz, of this decadent land that brought out the best. Not Eretz Yisrael. That's what Yaakov wanted. Vayeshev Yaakov, Yaakov Leishev his homeland. Homeland of his, of Yitzchak, of Avram, promised land. It was Dafke Mitzrayim that brought out the deepest. So challenges bring out the, the greatest strengths is the bottom line. What are some things we did correctly during Golos Mitzrayim that helped inspire Hashem to bring us into Geula that we should repeat now as we transition from Golos to the final Geula? So we know later we're going to learn next week's parsha. Kasheyanu Esam Ken Yirbe Vechen Yifritz. Same idea. The more they were afflicted and oppressed, the more they thrived and they flourished. Essentially, it was holding on to our Amuna. Amuna, Bishchus, Amuna, the Amuna that really preserved them, especially Bishchus, Noshim Sitkani is the Amuna of the righteous women. They did not change their garments, they did not change their names. So the same thing is here. When there's challenge, there's always the temptation or the, or the, the test. Will we retreat? No, we show that we're even prouder Jews and we stand stronger with more betachin Hashem, more trust, and we fight stronger to overcome all challenges. So, is the same thing. Just as Yaakov thrived, you see his best years were those last years, in Mitzrayim, same thing is that that's what Golas teaches us. So now as we transition and we suddenly have to deal with a setback like we're dealing with, it's meant to bring out even deeper strengths. And you see it. Look at the beautiful Kiddush Hashem. It's time and again by Eden everywhere. With the challenges. Okay. And we're also, we're also told that Yaakov, Bikish Yaakov Legalis Saket, just like Bikish Yaakov Leishu Bishalva, he also wanted to reveal to them the Ketz, where Mashiach would come. To make things easier, they should know that Mashiach is about to come, Mashiach will be here soon. But then it says, Nistal Kashkin, the Shkina did not allow, was blocked from Yaakov. So the question is, why was Yaakov not, Yaakov not able to reveal to his children the exact time Mashiach would come? After he first promised them, he would tell them. If he thought ultimately that it was a bad idea to tell them, why did he first gather them together and say he was going to tell them. So here again, there are sikhs from the Rebbe on the topic, but let's take it more into the personal lesson, not so much the learning of it. And the bottom line is that Anyawan and Yaakov wanted to make it easier for them. But the Rebbe once said in the sikha, back in Tavshim and Malaf, imagine Yaakov did tell them. And we know then they had hoped Mashiach would come right away, but the fact is that Mashiach is still not here. So imagine telling them, Tavshim Mem Aleph, the thousands of years now Mashiach will come. So what kind of, how that exactly is going to comfort them? But there's a different point here. The point is, he wanted them to understand there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And he wanted to tell them where that light is. And Yaakov hoped, this is how the Rebbe explains it, that through their actions, they would speed it up. It wouldn't be Tavshim Mem Aleph. They would speed it up because they want it to happen as soon as possible. But the Ebershter wanted, wanted people to come to it on their own. Not because, okay, here's the deadline, so that completely come from ourselves. 
It's a tremendous lesson in what we're discussing here, the theme this evening, in this, in this program, that how heder, little, how the lack of something brings out the deepest strength. When you have it and you're comfortable with it, it's not necessarily going to be completely from you. It could be because it's such a nice thing. But when you really feel desperate, and it's coming from you, it's a whole different experience. And that's what the Ebershter wanted. Hashan Rabbe Memdala, Tavshim Memdala, the Rebbe said similar. That the Golas is completely Ebech HaSeichel. That it should be in Golas for so long. And the Rebbe said, the only way you can explain it, he said it among, you could barely hear the Rebbe speaking because he was crying so uncontrollably. The only way, because the Ebershter wants Mizol Shnei Metanemes, Mizol Veinem Metanemes. If there's somewhere, some hope, something to explain it with, you won't cry with the truth because you find this explanation. So Yaakov wanted them to come completely to it from their own. In many ways, this is post-Gimel Tamas. That the Rebbe himself who was yelling and screaming and demanding it is not physically doing so. So yes, we could see it in all the sikhs. But there's something that has to come. And that can only be when there's a total concealment. So setbacks, though we don't want them, have that ability to compel us to really cry with an emiss. And finally, one more thing on that topic. Why are Menashe and Ephraim considered part of the 12 tribes? And if so, why, if we want to count them, then we should say the 14 tribes. Why, third, why are there 14 tribes? So the brief explanation is the 12 tribes, Yud Bei Shiftete Yudke, the 12 tribes are the 12 different paths along the entire spectrum. That's why the parting of the sea into 12, split into 12 paths. Each one has their Seder Aveda. Yosef is, is the one that represents his family. He was Zechah that his own so-called path would break into two paths. So it's not three paths, Yosef, Menashe, Ephraim, it's Yosef. Yosef means Hesofa, to add. What was unique about Yosef? Yosef was the only one that had to end up in Mitzrayim. Like we mentioned and we discussed. meant he had to go into that dark place and we see the same story, like with Yaakov. He only thrived from that. He did not forget where he came from. So this Yosef, that added Hesofa to him. Yosef Hashem li ben Acher means from the Acher. Even from its time he turned it into a Ben. And he indeed had two sons. And each one is a detail, so to speak, a subset, a subset of Yosef. Menashe is from the word Nasheni that he made him forget his agony. The birth of Menashe, Mitzrayim, made realize that there's a future, so he made him forget the agony and the pain of Mitzrayim. But that's not enough. That's one Hesaf. He doesn't have that much agony. Then there's the positive. Ephraim is Hifrani, that I thrived, I flourished, I blossomed in this land. It's not just that I did not suffer so much, but I blossomed. 
So these are two paths within the Yisafa of Yisaf itself. So you have this breakdown into two, but it doesn't turn it into 14. There's not Yisaf of Menashe Ephraim, there's Yisaf. And Yisaf has two subsets, Menashe and Ephraim. The relevance to us, of course, is this theme of thriving through difficulty. Similar language, like Ifrani of Ephraim. Maybe the Chen Yirbe Vechen Yifritz, you could also say, is like the two expressions. One is multiplying, one is blossoming. <coughs> okay. <clears throat> Another timely matter is over, over the years, the Rebbe emphasized the days after Sarah Betavis, that it's now 30 days before Yutzvat. We know in Halacha, 30 days before Yom Tov, you start learning about that holiday. So the Rebbe applies the same thing to Yud Shvat. I recall at least twice that the Rebbe did this in Tovshim Emzayin, the year of the Svarim, the Dan Notzach of Hei Tevis. So that is sort of a Tevis, the Rebbe spoke about 30 days before Yud Shvat, said to take on Achlotus and prepare and learning Teda and doing Stok and actually appointing a Mashpia that would test you several times, three times before Yud Shvat to make sure that you're living up to your commitments. And then again in Tov Shinun. Tov Shinun, the Rebbe also spoke about 30 days before Yud Shvat. So someone asked, the Rebbe once said that it's customary to prepare for holiday 30 days in advance. And since the 10th of Tevis is 30 days before Yud Shvat, it's a good time to start emphasizing learning the Friedrich Rebbe's teachings and committing to his directives. Can we therefore ask Rabbi Jacobson to please give a brief synopsis of the original Basilagani Maimer? Thank you. So let me tell you what I'll do. Being that we still have time till Yushvat, but on the other hand, it's already within the 30 days, let's talk about one point that's relevant in the context of tonight's program. And as we go, each week we'll talk more about it. So it's about learning the Torah of Fidik Rebbe, directives, and of course, the Fidik Rebbe and the Rebbe. The Rebbe becomes leader in Yushvat. So the general thrust of the Maimer relevant to our discussion is the same idea especially the chapters that we learn this year, which corresponds this year to chapter, four, chapter 14. And that is the theme of Bizbuz Eitzus, that during a time of war, when it's danger, you get the greatest, the greatest splurging of the king's treasures. In regular times, these treasures, as he explains, are remain hidden. But in times of challenge, the king splurges, literally, bizbuza etzes, etzes that no one ever saw. And he himself puts himself on the line. Again, the concealment, the darkness brings out the greatest powers. And as he explains, that this etzes is called the mailas, eiren sof, lamayla, mayla, aden ketz, lamata, mata, aden tachas. Lamayla, aden ketz means helam, achar helam, to the deepest levels of helam, atzmi which we'll discuss in the coming weeks. But the relevance is that there's a war going on right now, and that's Israel. So we are given the Eitzis that the king, Melech Malcham Lachem HaKadosh Baruch provides and splurges. These Eitzis splurges, not just gives them. We'll open up all the coffers and all the treasures in order to reach the Netzachan against the enemy. Because the enemy touches the very etzem. 
Dafka an enemy does that. Why not other things? Because when you're challenged, it brings out the deep, deepest strength that you have within. That's why Dafka in this world is a dirale is baruch, lats muse is baruch. In a world of klippus, mali klippus, Dafka in a world where there's a helm, a darkness, and there's an p- opposition that brings out the strength, as you see. When there's resistance, there's opposition, it makes you much stronger. Another question asked, can we go to another cemetery to pray for an unable to travel to the oil? Did the Rebbe once say that if someone is not able to visit the oil on Yuchvat because they live far away and they can go to, and they can that they can go to any cemetery in their city that has a tzaddik or big rabbi interred there, because all cemeteries are connected to each other and all are connected together with Israel. My question for Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Jacobson is what if someone lives far upstate? And at the same and at the same rural Jewish cemetery, there are no known tzaddikim there. Can someone go and just pick a random cave and daven there? Should one light a yardside candle there and leave a kvittel? A kvittel. Would it be helpful if we had tried every possible way to daven for the safe release of the hostages? And so far we haven't seen complete success yet. That we, that we, that we tried daving in a cemetery and asked the neshamas of the departed to please help daven with us. And maybe with their help we can get the message through to the kisei hakovid and see completely success to our prayers. So yes, the Rebbe did say firstly about cemetery, a tzaddik of a place of another tzaddik. I have to look up the source. I don't have it offhand. If anyone knows where it is, please share it and I'll share it with everyone. So the answer is yes, if a person has no, has no other way. Regarding the second question, I have not seen a direct source, but I would say yes as well. We have stories, for example, when the Jews were in Russia and they couldn't send a kvitla note to the Rebbe. The Rebbe said, put it in Tasefer. And the Ebrish will make sure it gets where it has to get to, and you'll get your right answer. So for sure, going to a kvarim of, uh, of Jews, whoever it may be, has also that ability, especially if it's family members. Now, of course, if a person could make it to the oil or could make it to a holy place, even better. But there's no such thing. The Ebrish is everywhere. And if whatever Ashgach Prentice prevents you from going to one of these places, you can do it at the cemetery, you can do it in a shul, you can do it anywhere, but every place has certain kedusha to it, and therefore I would say yes. If there's no choice, the Eberster will answer that way as well. Okay. Now let's talk about actions. Actions. So I got to keep getting many questions and suggestions. I thought it's just a good collective way to share what others are thinking, and every suggestion is valuable. So keep them coming, and I'll just share some of those that I see here. And then we will uh, continue on. So let's talk about some actions. What is chassidus and how does it give us the ammunition and fortitude to endure and to be victorious during a time of war? Well, we're coming from Yutas Kisl right before Hanukkah. Hanukkah also is a shaman, primis ha What is chassidus? Chassidus is the revelation of the neshama, of teda, the neshama within each person. So there's no question, the more you connect the soul, number one, you, deep, you, get, you gain greater resources. Number two, you gain deeper strength and hope because you're connecting, you're tied above, you don't fall below. It creates the morale and the spirit that is like spiritual ammunition and fortitude to endure anything. 
The real war is not It's not with power, brute power, firepower, and with, uh, with armies and weapons. It's beruchi, with God's spirit. We need both in time of war. But the spirit, and that's what Chassidus is. You go further, the Rebbe Rashab said, the Rebbe Rashab, who would give Eitzis about chess and nittle night, Kola Yetzel Muhammad's based David. He talks about the students in the yeshiva as being warriors. The Ruth Mochama, based on it, it's a war. So the idea of Chassidus is all about bringing spiritual, the spiritual war and ammunition against the assimilation, against darkness, against confusion, and arouse and awaken the passion in Aid, in the Neshama of Aid, in doing everything he has to do. To win this war, and ultimately it's a war against to bring Mashiach. Chemiz Beis David. That's the brief answer. Did the Rebbe ever tell us what is the best way to stop terrorism? Absolutely. Well, number one, remember, to stop with terrorism is Poshet, what you have to do, Bederachateva is to protect yourself and more importantly eradicate any enemy to not allow the terrorism in the first place. And the Rebbe's approach was always through strength. You have to do what you have to do when you're dealing with an enemy, enemies that are calling for your death, even if they come to you to talk about business, about neutral things, they're enemies. That's number one. Then there's the Ruchnizdika part. Lifza Tfilin, Lifza Mezuzah, Zdoke, Teir in general, Especially with children, chinuch, the pielin v'yemkin yisadet teiz l'hash b'seiv m'sakim utz eitz of a sufer d'abradover la'yokum. So through teira, by embracing teira mitzvahs, that's the way you fight terrorism. In addition to the battles that have to be fought. <clears throat> and if the terrorist is driven by passion and demonic hatred, our kedusha dikeshtuz the kedusha has to be also with passion and with very powerful angelic love that's even more powerful than their passion going to Lumazet to the opposite. How can we increase the simcha to break the boundaries during a time of war? You know, simcha pays together, it breaks boundaries. If we are taught that simcha can break through all boundaries, how can we use simcha and increase in simcha to break the boundaries during a time of war when it would be seem the more appropriate response would be to be strong and fight and to be sad at the carnage and at the suffering of the hostages. Even when we're sad by certain things, it still says, even the Hashem Simcha. Simcha is not frivolous joy. Simcha is connection to Hashem, to know that God runs the world, runs your life, and that in the end it'll all be good. And even now it's good, even if you don't see it. So Simcha also psychologically gives a person strength. The Rebbe brings often the custom the Friedrich Rebbe would cite that, that when they would go out to battle certain military, they sing a song of victory even before they began the fight, first fight. Why? They haven't even fought the war. Because it's about attitude. You see that's Lahavdalin in sports, in wars and so on. You see how the captain of the ship, the captain, the coach, the head coach, spurs everyone on with a pep talk. 
and they yell and they scream because it builds confidence to know you will win. Simcha, like the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 26 in Tanya, two people are wrestling. He uses the example of wrestling. And even if one is stronger, but he feels down, he's depressed, that alone is going to make him lose. So Simcha actually gives you confidence. And that's why it's so critical to have it and infuse even wars, though there are sadness over some of the, of the losses, obviously. But deep down, you're fighting for something, not against something. And that's what brings the simcha. Another question. Can we trick people into doing mitzvahs? And here's the background of this question. Hamas is cheating and not playing fair by committing war crimes, by not wearing army uniforms and using civilian human shields. Cheating is a mild word, but yes, I understand the point. Since we are fighting a simultaneous spiritual war by increasing in as many mitzvahs as possible, can we even the playing field and also cheat and commit spiritual war crimes by tricking people into doing a mitzvah they didn't plan to do? Okay, interesting parallel. Maybe, for example, if we have a co-worker that eats non-kosher and we can sneak into the fridge and steal their sandwich and replace it with an identical kosher sandwich, or we can open the tzach list and call random phone numbers, and when someone answers, we just start reading from the daily chitas to force them to hear a few extra words of Teda. Or would Hashem think it's a bad idea and it's better if we take the high road and play by the rules? Okay, I, I get the sentiment. You have the story with uh, the seven lessons we learned from a ganif, from a thief. So we could learn even from mamish from the umazet. I want to be careful with making the parables because we're dealing here with savages that have done such brutality. It's like you don't want to really learn from them, if you know what I mean. But in the general concept, the idea of taking from Shtuz de Lumaze that goes in the worst possible way, like the Nazi hatred, and saying, you know what, we must love Jews and surge them down with even more power and passion than they surge them down with hatred. If you take it that way, yeah. But the question about... Fooling someone, doing a mitzvah, or you'll say fooling, you're saying tricking, or, uh, you know, it brings to mind the idea of Leisignev in Kedusha, where the Altarebbe would change the clock, the story, so he can learn more time with uh, Rabbi Avram HaMalach. And he says, Those moments were the most precious, because stolen waters are sweeter. He would turn the clock, they would learn, let's say, half hour nigla. So when it came to Chsidis, Primisate, he would turn the clock to have more than a half hour. So you have the concept of Gnev and Kedusha, you know, where you, um, you're, t- you're stealing something in a Kedusha dika way. But you have to be careful because you don't want to deceive people. You know, it's much easier, to, much healthier to inspire someone to want to eat kosher, especially nowadays when Jews are more united, to be more Jewish than to fool it and fake it. So I wouldn't like that approach. I understand the sentiment and the lesson but I wouldn't apply it because it's much better to inspire. And as a matter of fact, people are very responsive. It's a big wake-up call and people will be responsive. So I would say you'll get better results if you just talk directly instead of doing it in a roundabout, false way. In addition, it just sounds, resonates more than using their methods of hiding behind civilians and so on that you've cited. Okay, but it's an interesting discussion. You know, it's a good for little night, a good, interesting... Uh, Okay. Next. Should we be 
Should we boycott buying goods and services from companies and institutions that give support both financially and otherwise to our enemies, the Hamas terrorists? You know, I think it's a case-by-case discussion. Those that are overtly saying things, and uh, why should we support them? Should we publicize it and make it into a whole thing that this is our effort? That's not our style. Privately, there's no reason to support anyone that's supporting your enemy. But I would not turn it into a political movement. You know, you find the opposite, obviously. The divesting, and they're all their BDSs. I don't even know all the names for it. Where they're trying to boycott Israel. So I wouldn't want to be in that boat and say, oh, they're doing it, we're also doing it. I would stay away from that. But personally, why spend money? Buy, buy the same product elsewhere. Why spend it on a person who's an enemy? You want to write a letter to, make, to voice it? I would do that case by case because, again, I wouldn't want to turn it political where it becomes, okay, they're doing it, we're doing it, let's see who does it better because we're not into, the boycott is not our method of war. But, again, in certain sensible situations, where why, why support an enemy? Especially someone that's voicing it and, and showing support for, for enemies and so on. So I see, it's, I'm, not, I'm not backtracking. I'm just saying to be done in a more under, I guess, in a more covert, a more uh, unofficial manner for the obvious reasons. Okay, a few more questions in this actions department. Should Israel do whatever it takes to eradicate Hamas, even if it puts Israeli soldiers at risk, or should they end the war now? Can we make do destroying much of Hamas's infrastructure and end the war now, knowing it will be much harder for them to do a new attack? Or should we keep fighting until they are completely destroyed, but by doing so, we'll be asking our Israeli soldiers to risk their lives? I am not a military strategist, and we know that in these cases, you want the military people to weigh in, not for political reasons and not politically, as the Rebbe made very clear, just like you want a doctor's opinion. So I would defer to them. Because they know exactly what that means, what means eradicating, what means if... I know it's easy to just say, destroy them all and save our... And, and, because it'll save lives in the long term. But maybe destroy all is a very big word. All could mean almost all. And can you really destroy all? There's always going to be someone and there'll be new people coming in. On the other hand, we know from the Rebbe, the Rebbe was very much about going all the way to cut off the head of the serpent. During the, during the Yom Kippur War, he said, go into Damascus and into Cairo. Not to stay there. Just to show the enemy that you are gone straight into their capital. There's a power to that. It weakens the enemy. It shows them who's, who, who wins, who loses, and who dictates terms. So in that sense, absolutely. And even if you save some soldiers now, if you don't really eradicate it, you end up going to pay the price. Look what happened here. Had they not done things they should have done, much heavier prices are being paid now. So in that sense, I would definitely say, again, I avo- I'd avoid being the military strategist here, but I would definitely say, eliminate everything you can because at the end of the day, they're going to come back. So if you leave any, you know, if the, if the Nazis did not, um, did not unconditionally surrender, you left some of them, no, no, no. Yes, you may save immediate lives right now because you didn't finish, you didn't, you, you're not putting anyone at risk, but you're putting pe- much more people at risk in the long term. Just like returning hostages and creating an incentive for them to take more hostages. So don't get me wrong when I said initially, I just was saying that I don't want to be the one that says when exactly that means. 
that's a military strategic. But generally speaking, at a point where you've seen what has happened, you don't, uh, you don't uh, just... Uh, now, that doesn't mean we take the lives of soldiers lightly. Lives have been lost, unfortunately. But that's the price you pay because you can lose a lot more lives if you don't do it now. That would be my general gist, and especially as I understand it from the Rebbe's approach. Okay. Should you receive converts from Gaza? Should we accept people from Gaza that want to convert or are the, or are the people from that region so toxic and damaged that we would not want them joining our community? Uh, it seems to me like a very hypothetical question. which We don't usually have a sayayta deshmaya when it's hypothetical or help from God to know how to answer because I have not heard anyone from Gaza who's asking to convert. I don't even hear anyone from Gaza that's asking to surrender, let alone. So I understand that's hypothetical. I think if there is indeed such a hechetimtza possibility, then you have to leave it to Rabbonim. Let them come to Fort Rabbonim. They say they want to convert. Let the Rabbonim figure out whether they're, they're sincere or not and follow all the halachas, which is usually dissuading and so on. So that's my quick answer. Then there's one more question, which I was debating whether to read it or not. I, I, I'm going to read it simply because of nittle. So, you know, maybe it's a little amusing, if you wish, or it's tragic, however you want to interpret it. And here's the question. And please don't laugh. Is there a connection between the tunnels that Bochum dug under 770 in the spiritual war that is being fought simultaneously with the Hamas tunnels under Gaza in the physical war? So if you don't know what I'm talking about, I also didn't know what this was till just recently, till I got this question or a little earlier. So I don't want to go into details. But first of all, I don't want to compare. You know, Hamas you're talking about, are what they did and they're doing is just beyond. But it's hard to ignore when you suddenly find a tunnel that was dug during COVID time under some of the basements under 770. I don't know what the intention was. I find it to be reckless, irresponsible, so I want to make that very, very clear. And it's hard to ignore that suddenly that pops up. So we know we have a comment that we like to say is that every big problem begins with a small one. Like, you know, when the, that, that Jew that didn't want to stop learning one hour a day, even though he got older, he said, if I stop learning one hour, even though I learn 20 hours a day, and if I go one hour less, then someone who goes to shul once a week will stop going to shul once a week. Someone who goes... To shul once a year, we'll stop going to shul. It's a ripple effect. So in that sense, we always look at ourselves that a subtle problem within you can ripple into something much bigger. But I want to also qualify, not compare the two, because it's not at all the reason that tunnels were made, but just the fact. And in general, doing things, tunnels, the very word, sounds like subterfuge, sounds criminal. You're doing underground, nobody knows, and it's never good intentions. So in that sense, I mean, it, it's, it's, if at minimum it's hefkatus, and most maximum it's dangerous. So again, I don't want to compare, but since someone asked the question, I decided to say it. And if, if I shouldn't have talked about it, Hashem Yirachim and Hashem will chaper ba'adi im shegisi, if I made a mistake in talking about it. I don't see damage done, but uh, anyway, I talked about it, so be it. But it's a lesson for all of us that we have to be, do things above ground, do things that are potato, 
Tomim Tim Hashem Alekecha. Follow what the Teda says. Learn Teda. Learn Chesidus. Daven. Do mitzvahs. Futsman Esecha Chutz. So that's the Seder Aved. I've never heard that. Seder Aved is to dig tunnels. Not from the Rabbeim. The Rebbe would be appalled that Bochem Bechlal are wasting time like that. So I think it's just a good lesson that we have to be focused on what we have to focus. Like the Rebbe spoke Hey Tevis. Regarding Hey Tevis, he said, Learn Teda. What are you doing Bechlal? What are you doing under the ground? What's a Bochem doing Bechlal under an, in a basement? And then, I mean, doesn't, the whole thing doesn't uh, ring true or ring right. Regardless of what's going on in Gaza, I would say this anyway. But being that it comes out this time like this, it just amplifies the point. Okay. <clears throat> I want to do a few more, fo- there's so much more. Hmm. So let's do about, I want to, let me conclude with something on a positive note. Let's do that. Who owns the land of Israel? We've been talking about that in the last few weeks. So there's a few more points I wanted to make. And then there are other topics which we'll leave for next time. And that is, why is it important for us to live in Israel at such a huge cost of lives? More detail. Why is it important for us to maintain a presence in Israel and have our own country and government at such a huge cost of lives after so many attacks against us. Why don't we all move out and give the land back to the Arabs and we can buy a big piece of land for cheap in Uganda and live there until Mashiach comes and tells us it's safe to return to Israel? Well, I hope the question is more of a rhetorical one. You just want to hear what I have to say and not a real sincere question because to me it would be extremely disturbing if a person asks this question, a person who davens every day, three times a day, facing east Eretz Yisrael, and the tefillahs, how many times do we mention Eretz Yisrael, and the promised land? We're not in Eretz Yisrael for comfort reasons. We're not in Eretz Yisrael because it's a nice country. We're in Eretz Yisrael because it's Eretz Hanifchid. It's a chosen land, a promised land. Like he says in the, Rashi in the first Pesukim in Chumash, the Ebishter chose this land and gave it to his chosen people. Eretz Yisrael, given to Am Yisrael. Yisrael from the words, means we've conquered angels, gods, messengers of God, I should say. And Yanoshim, and have prevailed is because it's a land that's saturated with the ability to bring Kedusha to the world. And Eden, Am Yisrael, Am Leches Kein Kodesh, Am Zgula, the power to bring Kedusha, spread it to the entire world. It's in, inextricably bound to the very Nesham of Eid, Teire, Eretz Yisrael, and Eden. Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. So it's the very purpose of our existence. It's that we cannot build a Beis Amidosh. And even when we're in Eretz Yisrael, there's a certain Golos. But Eretz Yisrael retains that Kedusha Lezazim and Kema that always remains there and its purpose. So for Eden to be in Eretz Yisrael is not like Lahavdal, the French in France and the, and the Brits in, great, in the United, in UK or Americans in America. 
This is an inherent spiritual connection. And it's a soul, it's not just another land, it's a soul that's an exports kedusha. Shara Shemaim, the gate to heaven. That's the gate there, nowhere else. The Harabayas, Besamigdash, Keshlamarovi. That's where the kedusha is. is. Is it surrounded by enemies and there are challenges? Yes, there are. But that doesn't weaken our connection. And when the Abraham want that Eden should return there, look how many Eden have returned there. So it's about understanding our very destiny, our very identity, our very calling. So it's one and the same. And that's why we pray about Kibbutz Goliath, that the Kabbutz Nitzchei Yisrael, that all of us should return. You could say, why can't you just be a good Jew anywhere in the world, even after Mashiach comes? Because there's something about Eretz Yisrael, Davke, Eretz Hashad, Eini Hashem, Alekech, Bamadesh, Hashan, Yvad, Achrishana, God's presence, Shara Shemaim, I mentioned, the gate to heaven. It's just like saying, you know what? Shabbos is difficult to do, so let's do only, uh, let's, let's move it to another day. No. Shabbos, Shabbos, Kedish. And Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. That's his man. And the Mokim, it says to Srolz, the Kedish. Eretz Kedish, the Holy Land. Like I'm Kaddish. And if you don't know this, learn about it. Because that's exactly what the world needs to hear now. That we are bringing you blessings. The Jewish people and Israel bring the world blessings. That's why it says in Medrash that if they knew the Umas Elam of how much Israel protects them, now Beis Amigdus protects them, and the Ayin Ponim that we bring on Sukkot protects the Ayin Umas, the 70 nations, instead of attacking, they were surrounded with legions to protect the source of blessing to them, not just to the Eden. And Beis Beis Trilud Lekola Amim. Like we said in Aftera on Sura uh, Betevis. And so many other expressions of Eretz is central. It's the place where God's presence interfaces with existence. And it's the Jewish people that interface with all the nations of the world. So it's an unbelievable schus to be there. And that's why it's important that the world know this and help protect and defend this holy land that was given to the holy people of Israel. And with that, we will conclude this program of My Life Exodus Applied, special Nittle edition, special Israel at War edition. should only have fulfillment of these words that just finally live up to, to this, this calling and destiny. Shalom is an Nasati Shalom Ba'aretz, complete peace, not just absence of war, complete peace, Shalom, with Gilead Lekus and Eretzisol, spreading Asid Eretzisol, Shetispashat Bechol Arotzis, spreading that message and that light and that energy to the entire earth. And it should happen speedily, literally now. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My Lafxid is supplied. Everyone, we be well and be blessed. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.